Hey everybody, the December 2020 Roundup was brought to you by Fun Again Games. And first of all, folks, sorry I'm a bit late to the party, but let me say Happy New Year! Oh, please, please let it be a Happy New Year, this new, shiny, exciting, full of potential 2021. Let us never speak of 2020 again. Let's put it in the rearview mirror right after this video. Because, of course, at the beginning of every month, I've got to talk about all the games my wife and I played over the preceding four weeks. And so that's what you're here for. So, what's up? Well, I got to come clean and say uh, December was nowhere near as impressive as November was. I think in November we did 26 games. And in December... Mm, um, Sorry, I got a little peanut stuck in my teeth here. Uh, anyway, December, I think, was 14 games. Uh, it was very tough trying to get games to the table this month, uh, December, because in part, my wife, this is always her busiest time of year, she had a lot of last-minute Christmas orders she had to fulfill for Jennifer Ham Glass, and, uh, and a bunch of other stuff came up. But still, I mean, some of the best games we played this year, we played over the preceding four weeks, so I'm going to run them down for you. Although, as always, before I get to the stuff that I did, we will be talking about the stuff that Shea Parker and Ryan Crichton covered for the channel, my two contributors. They've got five additional games, so that brings the count up to 19. That feels a little bit more uh, reasonable, so good job, guys. Right. So, let's get going. Uh, starting with the games Shea covered for the month, what do we got here? We have got, oh yes, a little thing called ISS Vanguard, which is a monster huge hit. It's crowdfunding right now from Awakened Realms. It's, uh, I think, I just looked uh, this morning, and it's like up to almost three million bucks raised. Uh, this is a hugely popular breakthrough, in spite of the fact that it's not on Kickstarter. It's on a new uh, crowdfunding platform called GameFound, I believe, and that is not slowing them down. But what is the game? Well, of course, you can go watch Shay's video to find out. But basically, easiest way to call this is Mass Effect, the board game. And it's got a lot of really great stuff going for it. In fact, originally, I was planning on covering it myself. But, like I said, December really didn't quite work out, so at the last minute I called an audible, sent it to Shape, and he was able to get a video up and running for it and show off just everything that's going on. It's a beautiful production, like always with Awakened Realms. It's got tons of gorgeous minis, um, and a healthy dollop of dice rolling. You're going on to alien planets, uh, you know, facing all kinds of threats and uncovering ancient mysteries and all that. And it's driven by lots of dice rolling. Maybe too much dice rolling for Jens and my taste, but like I said, three million bucks currently, and it's not even on Kickstarter, and it's such a huge hit. So, uh, and Shay definitely dug it. And I think there is a lot of interesting decision-making to the dice, because you can overpay dice to guarantee you get successes, but then you'll be short later on. There's a lot of opportunity for collusion between players, because this is a cooperative game. But all that aside, what really makes Vanguard special, what really attracted me to it, was not the planet-side exploration and dice rolling and um, all of that, it was when you leave the planet and go back to your ship, the Vanguard, there's like this whole other game you play where you manage the ship and a crew of hundreds as you try to develop them and research mysteries and repair your ships and train your people and all kinds of stuff. It's like a whole separate game um, that uh, you know could have been really a game in and of itself. And then, hey, we get to a planet, we roll some dice and see what happens. But this game is really two games for the price of one. And like I said... It has exploded. It is a monster hit. It's still going to be on GameFound for a few more days. You can go check out Shay's video to learn more of the ISS Vanguard. Which, of course, by the way, was a paid Kickstarter preview, so bear that in mind. Um, but moving right along, we've got another one from Shay. The Masters of Mutant Knight, which is actually going to launch on January 5th. So you'll see it in a few days on Kickstarter. This is another paid preview. And this is... Definitely not Jens and my uh, cup of tea. This is a uh, a superhero brawling, uh, you know, fisticuffs game where two players face off against each other, running all around a city, uh, th you know, throwing gigantic things at each other, using all kinds of special powers, and trying to knock each other out. And it's done through deck building, and the deck building is actually pretty nice. Everybody has a, a simple little hand of cards that lets them. Well, they're all multi-use cards because you can use them to move or use them to throw things or punch things or all kinds of stuff. But over the course of the game, as you're running around the city trying to get in a position to attack your opponent, you're also picking up more cards that will unlock more super special powers that you can use. And I have to admit, 
I was not interested in this game at all, but after watching Shay's video, he kind of convinced me it looks like a lot of silly, fast, goofy fun. And so if you like that idea, if you want to be in a big superhero, supervillain, epic brawl that's driven by very fast and um, clever multi-use card deck building, you might want to check out Masters of Mutant Knight when it goes on Kickstarter. Again, I think it's on the 5th of January. But anyway, then finally, Shay also filmed Ping Yao. And this was another one that I had originally planned on covering myself, but, um, you know, time... Well, time is the fire in which we burn, and sometimes I just can't get everything done I want to do. So again, Shay stepped up and covered this excellent... Uh, Oh, what do you call it? Um, ancient China banking simulation, which is where you're, you are the bank. You're the one giving out the loans to people and to governments. You are opening branches, and you are trying to make as much money as possible to score lots of victory points. And it's very sharp. It's a really interesting economic simulation uh, to be controlling a bank instead of be controlling a business that has to go to bank for loans. You're the one who gives out the loans. And the whole thing is a worker placement game where you roll dice. Those are your workers, and it's got some very, very cool elements for worker bumping, where if somebody else has gone to a space with a die value that you've already, uh, that, that you've got in hand that you're going to go, you can't go there. So there's sort of blocking. If I've got this four and you go someplace I want to go with a four, I can't go there. But I can use my three or my two. But I have to use dice in a particular order. So there's a lot of really clever, fresh dice worker placement stuff going on in this game. And then it all drives a very well-realized and really fascinating um, simulation of banking. I mean, I've never really thought about all the kind of stuff banks can do, but this game really goes out of its way to cover it all with a really great production, and uh, it looks like very sharp gameplay. I will say there are some elements that are maybe a little bit more cutthroat than we would like, potentially, but on the whole, I was really impressed, and this is another one that's going to go on Kickstarter, I believe, on January 5th. And again, it was a paid preview, so bear that in mind. But if you want to know more, you can watch for that um, on Tuesday when uh, this goes live, Shay's run-through of Ping Yao. Then we move on to Ryan, who has a couple of videos as well. Um, the first one is for Era of Tribes. And oh my gosh, this looks to be one of the biggest, most elaborate, epic 4X games you can possibly imagine. It, um, modif it, you know, it models so many different ways that we can accumulate uh, victory points in this... I think it's a, a medieval-era uh, European setting where we are trying to expand, exploit, uh, explore, and exterminate, but also engaging in lots of other stuff, negotiation. And, I mean, again, this game runs super, super deep. I mean, if you like incredibly rich crunchy and aggressive Euro-style 4X simulations, this is definitely something you need to check out. And if you need to know a little bit more about it, definitely check out Ryan's video. Uh, he told me this is the longest rules video he has ever done because it's his biggest project to date. And yet, in spite of that, I really enjoyed watching it because... Honestly, I just love Ryan's, um, you know, really great uh, humor that he brings, so that it really keeps everything dynamic and engaging. Of course, his rules videos uh, feature uh, lots of stop motion for the way he animates stuff and and overlays. And uh, I mean, yeah, who else is going to put a Zardoz reference into their um, rules how to play video and and somehow make it work and fit? Uh, like I said, Era Tribes probably not for me, but. You, if you're the type of gamer who loves insanely crazy, over-the-top, rich, heavy games that model everything there is, definitely check out Ryan's um, video for Era of Tribes, which I believe um, is available at retail now. But And there will be a Kickstarter going for it uh, sometime in the middle of next year for some new expansion content. So uh, get ahead of the curve. Learn about Era of Tribes. And then Ryan, on the flip side of one of the heaviest games I have ever seen, he also did coverage for Winter. Queen, which just ended its Kickstarter campaign. It ended on the last day of December, and this is a gorgeous, beautiful, fast, light, gateway-style um, uh, set collection game, where on your turn, you are either putting these gorgeous little gems out onto a board, or collecting these gems. And you collect these gems to either learn new spells, or power up and cast spells to be able to get collecting even more gems. Like I said, 
It's fast. It's it's a uh, it's got a lot of variety because there's lots of different spells and not all of them you available every single time you play. And um, it's all about clever placement of these gorgeous little crystals. Because if you've got a spell that's going to score in a certain way, you want to get crystals out on the board that match that particular layout. But other players might be taking those crystals because they need them to learn particular types of spells. And so there's a lot of interactivity between players, a lot of pattern building, and it's. Uh, uh, it seems, from Ryan's uh, rules video, and you can go check that out, uh, it seems to be very, very sharp. Uh, like I said, the Kickstarter is already over, but I don't know, maybe there's some kind of, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, pledge manager where you could still maybe uh, pick it up. But uh, again, Ryan does a great job of capturing the feel, and uh, you walk away from this knowing what Winter Queen is all about. And so that's it. For my boys, uh, Ryan and Shay, uh, thank you for those five videos. But now let's move on to what Jen and I were playing. And as I have been doing um, for the last few, we're going to start out with just the expansions uh, as a mini list, and then we'll get on to the main list. So I've got three expansions to talk about uh, for the month of December, starting with my number three, because this is a countdown, the West Kingdom Tome Saga expansion. And now, to be fair, one of the reasons we didn't play a lot of new games is because of this Tome Saga expansion, because this expansion is three different games in one. In this expansion, you can turn uh, Architects of the West Kingdom, Paladins of the West Kingdom, and Viscounts of the West Kingdom, any one of those, into a cooperative game that um, keeps all of what makes the base game, whether it's Architects, Paladins, or Viscounts of the West Kingdom, it keeps all the really great gameplay that made them these wonderful competitive games, but it introduces a, uh, a competitor for players who now have to work together. The King's Overseer, who basically um, every round is going to be pursuing their own agenda that we have to work together to fight against. To win these games, we have to get a certain communal score. And so we're still trying to play our best, just like we would normally play the competitive game, to get a high enough score possible while also stopping the progress that the Overseer is constantly making. And we actually did a live playthrough of Viscounts, and uh, it, was, it was really uh, engaging. And interestingly, I, both Jen and I agreed we enjoy Viscounts of the West Kingdom more as a cooperative game using the Tome Saga expansion rather than a competitive game. We also played Paladins, turning it into a cooperative game, and it worked just as well. Um, very, very impressive. And it's interesting, too. Uh, the, the new gameplay elements that are introduced that allow players to interact with each other, because we're cooperating now, are really sharp and very well done. And then, of course, there's Architects. And I didn't play Architect, but I did read the rules to see how that worked as well. And overall, I think this is amazing. My only real complaint about Tome Saga is, while you know it takes these great games, doesn't hurt anything, you know, still accentuates all the great competitive nature, but now we're competing against an external force, because we're playing cooperatively, Jen and I found these games now take longer. Because in a competitive game, look, I just take my turn, I'm thinking about it when it's your turn, I make my turn and it's your turn. In a cooperative game, we spend so much more time talking and working through all of our plans and figuring out how we're going to work well together. And that slows the game down. So if there's one thing I would have liked to have seen in the Tome Sagas as changes to the original game would be something just to make them a little bit shorter to offset the fact that they got longer because it takes longer to cooperate with somebody than compete against them, as it turns out. But all that aside, they're brilliant. And if all that weren't enough, the Tome Saga has an alternative where you can still play the three games, Architects, Paladins, and Viscounts competitively, but you can turn them into a three-chapter metagame where, uh, for each game you play, different variable objectives are added, which score points not in the game you're playing, but in the overall West Kingdom game. And after you play all three games, probably over the course of several days, because that would be a long experience, whoever um, completed the most of these objectives, and one objective is winning the individual games, is the overall West Kingdom winner. And that looks very sharp too, turning uh, the West Kingdom games into a campaign game, for all intents and purposes. So... Very, very impressive. And like I said, I really love the cooperative takes on these games. They were already very good. I just wish... There was something put in just to make the games a little bit shorter to offset that cooperative slowdown. But otherwise, great stuff. My number three expansion of the month, the West Kingdom Tome Saga box. Okay, then we move on to number two, which is the Magnificent Snow. 
And The Magnificent is a great uh, dice drafting game. I did a run-through for it. I think it was it last year? Maybe it was the year before. But a beautiful game from the design team behind Santa Maria, one of my favorite uh, dice drafting games of all time. And this is another really sharp one about uh, sending up uh, carnivals that roam the countryside and put on shows all by um, you know using special powers with beautiful crystal clear dice and all that. So what does snow add. Well, because you can go watch my run-through of the original Magnificent to get an idea of what it is. A few things. One, you can go up to five players, which, of course, is of no great consequence to me or Jen. Uh, We're only going to be playing it two-player anyway. But the main thing it adds that I really appreciate is a bunch of new uh, Ringmaster cards and scoring cards that add just a lot more variety, a lot more strategies are worth pursuing now. But it also adds Snow, which is a new performer uh, that uh, can score huge amounts of points because it's much harder to meet their needs before they will put on performances. And, I mean, you can make a whole strategy out of just trying to placate the Snow performer because they're always available. There's a little bit less luck involved uh, because you know, they're always available, but they're, they're, again, they are much harder to pull off uh, their performance as well. Um, and then there's one other thing. Uh, a whole extra board is added to the side that I was afraid was going to increase the game length a little bit too much. It basically, every round, in addition to drafting the four dice you're going to grab, so you're going to do four actions, you will do a fifth action by drafting a an action tile off the Ringmaster board. And um, you know, first come, first serve, these are hugely powerful things. And it makes uh, turn order all the more important to be able to get in and grab the best Ringmaster tiles available. Uh, and like I said, I thought it would... It basically adds a bunch more turns to the game. But the Ringmaster turns are all about just getting a little bit of extra something right when you need it before you're going to do a regular turn. And it was great. We both agreed it was a fantastic addition. I mean, the Magnificent was already magnificent, and now it's even more so with my number two expansion of the month, the Magnificent Snow. At least I assume that's how you pronounce it with the weird O that has a slash through it. But anyway, our favorite expansion of the month had to be Aeon's End, The Southern Village, which is one of the new small box expansions that have come out for Aeon's End. Jen and I, we love Aeon's End to pieces, so we're always excited to play more of it. And Jen and I sat down and played this. We tried the new characters. We tried the new boss. And um, with, I think, not all of the new spells and um, uh, relics and whatnot, but uh, but, uh, a goodly portion of them. And it was all very impressive. Aeon's End is always fantastic. I am perpetually amazed how Kevin Riley and um, you know the Indie Board and Cards team, which is uh, Nick Little and Sidney Engelstein, continue to find new and interesting ways to reinvent this game. The boss in this game, for the first time, introduces a board. Uh, unlike most uh, you know, di- or, uh, deck building games, including Aeon's End, suddenly with the Southern Village expansion, you're fighting a boss that is actually traveling around the world. And we've got markers so we can travel around the world and try to intercept his lieutenants, these little flame sprites that are trying to burn down the city. Or we have to get out of their way because they'll come after us too. And it was wonderful. I really enjoyed actually having a real physical presence and having to worry about where I am in the world instead of everything just being abstracted away. The two new uh, playable characters are great. As always, they come up with some very interesting new twists to the formula. The new cards were great. Everything was great. Aeon's End continues to be great, and we had a wonderful time playing my number one expansion of the month for um, you know one of my number one games of all time, Aeon's End, The Southern Village. And now, folks, now, after I get a sip of water, we can move on to the games. Mm. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Ah, sorry to make you wait for that. But uh, your patience will be paid off because let's get going with my number 11 game of the month, Forgotten Waters. Oh, yeah. So, remember, this is a countdown. So, 
Forgotten Waters at my number 11 was our least favorite new game we played this month. And that's really not the fault of Forgotten Waters. The thing is, Forgotten Waters is not really for us. This is a narrative adventure game that uh, is really almost kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure, but couched in a real-time worker placement structure. And that is actually very, very cool. Um, the, you know, the, the way everything comes up, because uh, when your pirate crew, because we're working cooperatively to keep our... Uh, to, to solve the mystery and, you know, complete the adventure that we're on for whatever storyline we're following, as our ship sails to distant ports or runs afoul of, of other ships on the high seas or discovers mysterious lost islands or whatever, uh, that forces us to um, switch the storybook page to a new location that might be out at sea or an island or in a port or whatever it is. And on this new page, there's beautiful art showing you where you are, but there's also a bunch of worker placement spots. And the thing is, when you look at these worker placement spots, you don't know exactly what they do. You know broadly, oh, if I go to the tavern, I can expect I might get into a fight. I might be able to recruit people. If I go over to the shop, I'll probably go shopping. If I go into the mysterious cave, ooh, what's going to happen? I don't know. Um, but the game gives you little icons, so you can take educated guesses as to what might happen in these locations. And you can also decide, well, you know what? Um, I don't know what's going to happen in that cave, but it says I'm going to need strength. So maybe I should send my worker, because everybody has their own worker. And when you turn to the new page, lickety-split, you start a timer. And I think it was a minute, although that's adjustable. You have a minute for everybody to choose where they're going to send their pirates who have different strengths and weaknesses. And everybody has to agree, no, I should be the one to go to the cave. No, I'm going to go to the cave because I'm really strong, but I don't want to do any of these other things, and that might give me the last thing I need to level up my character. And, and you have a minute. And if you don't work it out in a minute where everybody's going to go with this imperfect information, um, then there will be a penalty. And then, after that's over, you can reveal what all these spaces actually do. And then, you've got to roll dice and see if you can solve various challenges and whatnot. And that's where the game kind of fell down for us, because we loved everything else about this. We love the narrative adventure. I mean, this game literally made us laugh out loud more than once with its presentation. Uh, it's really good writing. Uh, interestingly, I mean, you might think it's all just lighthearted, silly banter, but there are some darker chapters. Sometimes this game almost crossed the line into a PG-13 level of maturity because there are some dark moments and some, you know, slightly ribald language. Although, I mean, maybe you wouldn't consider um, ass to be... Uh, but we were kind of surprised because at first it seems like this is really just for kids and families and whatnot. But no, there's some more interesting, scary moments that happen in addition to all the funny stuff. But anyway... Uh, so we, we dug the real-time worker placement. That was very interesting, having to make these decisions without perfect knowledge. Um, and uh, we like the narrative, which, uh, by the way, is driven by an app which has voice acting from Eric Summoner of the Dice Tower, and it's amazing. You can see why Eric is in such a, a such an in-demand. Uh, he his profession is he reads, uh, you know, he does audiobooks, and so I mean, he did a fantastic job, really entertaining to listen to. And um, really, it was just the fact that oh, after all that, it all comes down to rolling dice and seeing if we succeed or fail, which is rolled resolve is never our favorite thing. Plus, I will admit. Officially, it's a minimum three-player game, but after it was released, the developers put out a two-player variant set where each player controls two pirates, and it works. It works very well, but there's no doubting this game is better the more players you have around the table because then you you have more people um, arguing about who should do what. With two players, Jen and I were able to find we never ran out of time. It was always very, well, clearly I should do that and you should do that. And um, so I think some of the raucous fun of the game is going to be lost if you're not playing at higher player counts. So overall, it's a great production, just not the kind of game for me, which is why it comes in at the bottom of the list, my number 11 of the month, Forgotten Waters. Then, moving on to number 10, Kadama Forest, which is um, a game that I so wanted to love. Um, and I think I could. But again, it comes in low on the list because we played as a two-player game, and this is a game that really wants three, four, five players. Because we are um, sitting down with a grid on either side of us. Between me and my player to the left and me and my player to the right, there is a grid where we are going to be placing polyomino tiles to try to make these little forests and score points in a variety of different ways, making homes for cute, adorable pandas and butterflies and covering up spots that will make us lose points and all that. But here's the deal. At the end of the game, my final score is going to be one of my two forests. The one to my left or the one to my right. Whichever one scored better. And when I'm working on the one to the left, between me and the left player, I'm working with the player to the left. And we have to come to a consensus about where we should place tiles. And so, I mean, this is like between two cities. Um, or between the two castles of Mad King Ludwig. And I love this approach to gaming. 
The problem is, and I suspect it'll work great if you have at least three players. So you have somebody else, so you get to interact with a player to your left and to your right. In a two-player game, they do not try to replicate that, which is very sad. Because um, Between Castles of Mad King, Ludwig did it in a much better way. But anyway, instead they just said, oh look, I've got two tiles, you've got two tiles, and there's no interaction between us. And that was a real bummer. I wish they'd done a little bit more work or just even followed the pattern that um, between castles, two castles of Mad King and Ludwig used because I think it would have worked here brilliantly and it would have really elevated Kodama Forest as a two-player game. As it is, it's fine, but there are other polyominal games I'd like to play more because it what really makes it special is Lost at two. But I would love to play it someday as a three-player game. It's like a really nice, light, fast, gateway-style tile-laying game. It does what it sets out to do very well. It's just, I think, the two-player variant... Could have used a little more work. Anyway, though, that was our number 10 of the month, Kadama Forest. Then we move on to number 9, The Fox in the Forest. All the Forest came out. This is a game uh, that came out a few years ago. It's a two-player-only trick-taking game that has gotten so much love. People just adore this game. And I finally got around to playing it with Jen. And I can definitely say Jen and I both agree that it's very, very good. And it does what it sets out to do brilliantly. It uh, does nearly the impossible thing, making a two-player-only trick-taking game compelling. And it is very compelling. The trick to it is, of course, every round, Evesus is going to play a card. You have to follow suit of whatever the lead player did. All the normal tr- uh, you know, trick-taking stuff, the high card wins, unless it's the Trump suit, and you know all that kind of stuff. All that works fine. And normally, a trick-taking game needs more players to be an interesting, compelling experience. But there's two things that makes Fox and the Forest cool. One is all the odd-numbered cards have special powers. And um, you know when you play those, that changes things up radically. They're all very interesting. They're really compelling. The even number cards are just worth you know their value to win the trick. Um, so that was very cool. But what's more important is how you score. Because we're going to go through the entire deck a few times. And, um, and at the end of every uh, trick... As we win more and more tricks, once we've gone through the entire deck, we'll score points based on how many tricks we won. And the tricky thing is, if you win too many tricks, you are considered greedy. And you do very, very poorly on scoring. Uh, If you win almost no tricks, you're considered humble. And you do really, really well. But if you can't pull off... uh, If if you can't pull off humbleness, you really want to stay away from winning too many. I think if you win seven to nine tricks of the nine tricks, if you win seven, eight, or nine of them, you are greedy and you get nothing. And that's painful. Um, So you're trying to aim for just the right amount of tricks so you can come out ahead of your opponent. And that's really clever. It makes for a lot of really smart moves that you can make if you're paying attention to what your opponent has and hasn't played, which means, like all trick-taking games, if you want to play this at a high level, you need to be leveraging your memory and remembering, right, have you... Have all the yellow cards been played? Have all the key suit been played? I'm not sure. I can't remember. Ah! So that was our first problem. We never enjoy memory in games. And really, to play this well, you need to be tracking what has been played. Because once a trick has been scored, it's face down. You're not allowed to look anymore, which always drives me nuts. Why do they do that? If it were face up and we were allowed to look so I could take an educated guess of what's still in your hand, yes, it would slow the game down, but I'd be much more engaged because I wouldn't have to be remembering everything. The other issue is like any trick-taking game, this is a game where all your thoughts are bent on trying to ruin your opponent's plans. It's very confrontational. You know, it's a soft confrontation because it's just about points, but still, the entire game was just me and Jen trying to outmaneuver each other and ruin each other's plans and you know, and get one up, and that's just not for us. So it's brilliantly done. And if you like trick-taking games and you want to play a two-player game and you like beautiful, lovely, uh, evocative art you definitely owe it to yourself to check out Fox in the Forest because it definitely lives up to the hype. It's just not Jen's and my cup of tea. So anyway, that's my number nine of the month, The Fox in the Forest. Then we go on to my number eight of the month, Florenza, the 10th anniversary edition, or the X anniversary edition, as they like to call it, but it is the 10th year, so I'm going to assume they mean 10 and not X. But anyway, I covered Florenza years ago, which is one of probably one of the heaviest uh, Euro economic simulations I've ever done a run-through for. And it was a brilliant design, all about Renaissance-era nobles being the patrons of the arts, giving money to artists to be able to make great work so that they themselves can score victory points. You've seen this uh, in a lot, including the Florenza Dice Game and the Florenza Card Game, which I've also covered. And so anyway, on the 10th anniversary, they brought a new one out. And I was really interested, because there's a couple of things they were doing. One is, they introduced a solo mode, which is how I played it, and it's great really, really dug the solo mode of this game. In fact, I didn't even get a chance to play it because the stuff that kept us away from Florenza, whatever it was, 
five or six years ago when we covered it, is still here. You know, there is a little bit of aggressiveness with the uh, captain of the guard, and, you know, whoever controls the bishop can take stuff away from each other. It's soft aggression, and you know, I'm, maybe Jen and I could get comfortable with it, but, but there are, uh, but I, like I said, I only played it solo and had a great time. Um, one thing I will say, though, there were a lot of other tweaks and balances and new... I mean, there, there's like uh, entirely new cards. Uh, I forget what they're called. They're basically mercenaries you can hire. It's a new action you can take to get resources that you need to do other stuff. I believe that's actually um, brought in from the card game. I, I don't remember for certain, but so I've played so much Florenza now. But there are a lot of new features, which, if I would worry, would have made the game even bigger... And, you know, kind of getting into the cumbersome mode because it was already a big, epic, long, super heavy game and they've added more stuff. But a lot of the features of the game are still there, but they've been streamlined and simplified in the way that it's represented on the board. Being able to tell at a glance what the state of the game is is much easier now. So you have a better idea of where you're standing relative to everybody else. Everything's just smoother. Some of the rough edges have been sanded away. So it's, it's a faster game. And I really appreciate this. It now plays for seven rounds instead of eight. So overall, I mean, these are all huge improvements. So um, if you like Florenza, you probably, uh, or if you just like the subject matter, or if you're looking for a really heavy, crunchy, uh, meaty economic euro uh, set in Renaissance era Italy uh, that has a little bit of player screwage, just a little bit, Florenza X Anniversary Edition might be what you're looking for. And I mean, heck, Florenza has been very hard to get hands-on ever since it came out. So you just might want to get it because this is finally a chance to pick up Florenza with the 10th Anniversary Edition. That was my number 8 of the month. Great solo game. Then we go on to number 7. <clears throat> Century Golem Endless World. And now, this is the third game in the Century Golem series, which is a spin-off from the regular Century Spice Road series. And, uh, man, this was a tough thing for me to cover because in doing this, I also wanted to cover and demonstrate all the ways that Century Endless World combines with Eastern Mountains and combines with the original Golem. Because that's the thing about the Century series. It's three separate games, and they can be played individually as a uh, card drafting game, which is the original game, as a pick-up-and-deliver game, which is the second one, the Eastern game, and as a worker placement game, which is the third one, the world game. Um, and you can play it in two themes. A fantasy uh, world where you're making using crystals to make golems, or a more realistic historical setting where you're on the spice road and you're discovering the new world and engaging in trade. Um, regardless, it's, 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 it's a design miracle, the way that all three of these games come together to have seven different ways. If you own all three games, you've got seven games worth of content because each one plays very, very differently, depending on how you combine them together. And uh, it's very, very impressive. Now, on its own, if you don't have the other two games, uh, Century Endless World, or A New World, if you have the non-fantastical version, is a sharp, fast lightweight gateway family style worker placement game. It features a healthy dollop of bumping and it's all about sending workers out to get crystals or convert crystals into other crystals or upgrade crystals so you can complete um, contracts, i.e. build golems that will score you points and give you extra special powers that you can then use to uh, collect more crystals and convert more crystals and score more points. It's really, really nice and I could totally see this being a wonderful thing to have in your collection if you want to introduce new players to something like Worker Placement, because it does this brilliantly. It's easy to teach, fun to play, uh, and a fair bit of interaction with all the player bumping that is implemented very nicely. But like with the other Century games, it really comes to life when you mix it with the original Century game. And so you have extra cards that uh, drive, uh, basically allow you to create your own worker placement board by using the cards from the original Century. Or combine it with the uh, Eastern Mountain, Eastern Wonders, um, where now all your worker placement, in addition to doing all the regular stuff, also has to control you driving your caravan or your ship through different environments to pick stuff up. Or you can combine all three games. It, like I said, it's amazing that every single one of these permutations works brilliantly. And the more you mix the games together, the richer and more complex the games get. And that's when it really comes to life for me and Jen. This series is a keeper for us because we like it when you combine two or three of them together. In almost every combination, we really dug. Although we like some more than others. I talked about that in my run-through. But um, it's also good to just have these as gateways in case I ever need to introduce people to worker placement or uh, card drafting or uh, world traversal. 
Really awesome stuff. The uh, Century Spice Road or Century Golem series. And I finally, with this video, covered all of it with Endless World, which was my number seven of the month. Then we go on to number six. Marvel United. Oh, man, folks. I... Honestly, in spite of my deep, deep, deep abiding love for Marvel Comics, I did not expect to dig this game. Because it is a cooperative game where each player takes on a Marvel hero. The base box came with Captain America, Captain Marvel, the Hulk. Um, I'm trying to remember who else. Was it Hawkeye? Oh, Black Widow. Um, the Wasp. Although if you if you got it from a different store, you might have gotten Venom instead of the Wasp, I guess. Anyway, uh, I, I was like six or seven Marvel heroes and um, three different villains, the Red Skull, Taskmaster, and Ultron. And every time you play, you're going to play against a villain. You're going to have a randomly generated New York City with different environments that have different special effects. If your hero's in these areas, you can use the special abilities like you get on the shield helicarrier. That'll carry you wherever you need to go so you can get to the other side of the board really quickly if you need to to solve a problem. Um, or you can go to Stark Labs and you know get upgrade. You know, there's lots of cool stuff like that. Um, the bosses all play play very differently. And the heroes, I think, play uniquely as well. A lot of people complain that the heroes all feel very samey, but that is because by default, if you don't play on the hardest difficulty level, the deck of cards you have that controls your hero is kind of flooded with these wild card cards that mean you can pretty much do whatever you want because they're making the game easier. And it's not until you take those wild cards out and you play on the toughest difficulty level that the game really comes alive. And for people who are complaining, all the heroes feel the same... I guarantee you, they didn't play on the toughest difficulty level, which is the only way we'd play it. So anyway, I, I said, I didn't really expect to like this game because it's really simple. It's a very, very lightweight game. I knew I was going to like the heroes, but I was really surprised how much we do like it because it is a cooperative game, and the means of cooperation is one of the best systems I've ever seen. I felt I was cooperating more with Jen in this game than just about any other, because on my turn, I've got a hand of cards. I will play one. It tells me what I can do. I get the action icons off the card I played, and the previous card you played. And on your turn after I go, the card I played is going to affect you because you can use my icons and your own. And that is such a brilliant, simple system that just constantly keeps you involved and engaged when it's not your turn. Because I really need to move. I don't have any move cards. Can you play one? Well, I wasn't going to play that one, but I guess I can play this one. Really neat. Um, my only real complaint is it's too easy. Even played at the highest difficulty level, Jen and I, we played several games and we never lost once. And um, uh, so I'm a little worried about that because I don't know how much staying power it would have for us. But you know, this is really designed for a more lightweight, casual, gateway-style game. But we want something heavy. And here's the reason I'm holding on to it for now. Because next year, a bunch of expansion content is going to be coming for this game that introduces new villains, new heroes and new ways to make the game harder. New challenge cards. I've read about some of them, like reporters, that if you're in a location and you fight where a reporter is, it kind of ruins your secret identity, so you have to be extra careful about that. And I think those extra challenge cards worked into the base game will maybe put it at a level that Jen and I are really challenged by the game, which, again, is very sharp. It's a wonderful presentation and one of the sharpest design conceits for co-op I've seen in a long, long time. So... I didn't expect I was going to be holding on to this game, but it came in at my number six of the month, Marvel United. Then we go on to another light gateway game, my number five, Dungeon Academy, which is a roll and write game. It is all about we are just about to graduate from you know Dungeon Explorer Academy, something like that, and we have to take a final test. And what that means is we've got. 16 dice that are special that they show uh, different colored monsters, treasures, traps, you know, corridors and stuff like that. And what happens is at the beginning of every round, we're going to play over four rounds. We take all these dice, shuffle them up, put them in a tray, and then reveal the tray. And what we've got is a little randomly generated dungeon, a four by four dungeon. And we have, I forget, a minute. Uh, And I think you can change that to have more time if you want, depending on difficulty levels. But we have a minute to chart the best path we can through this dungeon, fighting monsters, healing up, scoring points. And everybody's looking at this dungeon from a different angle. Everybody has different special powers that they can use to deal with the dungeon. And so we all race as as fast as we can, and then after time is up, we reveal. And it's like we're taking our final exam, and we get graded on how smart our path is through the dungeon, i.e. how many points do we get. And we do that four total times 
And it's super charming. It's fun. It's fast. Over the course of the game, we're getting more cards that make us more powerful. There's a big benefit to going first because you get first dibs on the cards we can draft. If anything, that kind of bugs me a little bit because I always have... I'm always faster than Jen. And so... I have seen real-time games like this where they do the smart thing um, that, yeah, yeah, there's a reason to finish first, but there's also a reason to take longer. This game, there's not a reason to take longer other than just, you know... Um, you know, trying to figure out your path quicker. But if you can figure out your path quick, there, you know, it, it can be a little lopsided. I would have liked to see something like that. But that aside, we were both very impressed. We super charmed, charmed the pants off of us. And I'm looking forward to um, some offshoots, more standalone games that'll let you mix and match and do other stuff uh, in the coming year with more. Actually, I think some more has already come out because Dungeon Academy is the first one. I think there's two more that are already out. I'm not quite sure. But we were really impressed by this fun, fast little... This is a month of light gateway games and good ones because it's my number five of the month, Dungeon Academy. Let me go on to number four, Flourish. Now, this is a game I got early. It is not going to be out at retail until early 2021. Um, and it's too bad, because if this was a 2020 game, it probably would have made my top 10 games of the year, which I just did on Christmas Day a few weeks ago. This game is a brilliant card drafting game, where we are, you know, we have a hand of cards, we're picking one for ourselves to add to our garden, to score points in lots of different ways. And this is a very high point scoring game. We're ultimately going to end up getting 9, 10, 11, 12 cards to add to our garden over four rounds, if I recall correctly. And, um, you know, the card laying, the art, the components that come with it, all this stuff is very nice. But what really makes this game special is that um, on my turn, when I'm looking at all these cards I've got in my hand, I'm going to take one for myself, and I'm trying to do that so it'll score really well for me. I'm also going to have to give one card to the player to my left, and I'm going to have to give one card to my player to my right. And then I'm going to keep the rest of the cards and refill my hand. And that is agonizing. Because you do not want to give your opponent any cards. You want to hold on to all those cards yourself. Sometimes you will give cards to your opponents that you know they have no use, and you're hoping they'll give it back to you on a future turn so you can use it later on. But they know you want that card, and they might not give it back. They might send it in a different direction. Or in a two-player game, instead of sending it in a different direction, you do have the option, in addition to playing a card and handing two cards over to your neighbor, you can also burn a card, trash a card, to take it out of the game. This is a brilliant twist on the card drafting of Seven Wonders or Sushi Go that makes it very fresh, very interesting, and every turn from beginning to end is incredibly agonizing. And the game is gorgeous, too. You have secret objectives that are really smartly implemented. Um, There's just a ton of game in this box. It's one of the best card drafting games we've ever played. It's my number four of the month, and like I said, it'll be coming soon to retail uh, for 2021. And it's an early odds-on favorite for one of my top ten of 2021. Who knows? But for now, it's my number four of the month of December, Flourish. Then we go on to number three, Four Gardens, which is too bad I didn't make this my number four, so I could have said my number four, Four Gardens, but say la vie. 20, 20, 24 hours to go um, is where I'm at right now because I'm actually recording this on the 31st of December. Anyway, though, Four Gardens um, did make my top 10 of the year. And again, I was blown away. This is a very, this is another super duper easy, casual, um, gateway-friendly game that you could play with families. That uh, The center of it is this wonderful gimmick, this rotating tower of four different floors, and on your turn, you're going to play a card, rotate the tower a certain um, variable different ways to get different resources that you can harvest and store so that you can build beautiful pagodas and vistas for your gardens. Um, and honestly... When I was reading about this game and the publisher contacted me, I said, "Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take, it. I'll give it a, a look." See, I thought, "Yeah, this is going to be nice," but Jen and I will think it's a neat gimmick with the rotating tower, which is a super cool gimmick. I cannot stress just how awesome it is. This physical, imposing tower that's constantly rotating and constantly shifting—that was very cool. I figured we'd think, "Oh, that's neat," but it's too lightweight for us. But here's the deal, folks: this is an incredibly, um, this is a deep game. It's, 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 it's really simple rules. Um, really simple goals, but there's one thing that makes it a very complex game if you want to pay with peak efficiency. Uh, when you are harvesting stuff every round after playing a card, and by the way, these cards are multi-use. They do other stuff as well. Uh, so you always have that to bear in mind. What do you want to, which card do you play for the best benefit for right now? But anyway, as you harvest stuff that you're going to use to build gardens, you are limited to a four and maybe five slot storage space. And that's painful because usually, if if you weren't limited, you could be able to harvest you know six, seven, eight 
nine resources, depending on how you've manipulated the tower. And you could drown in resources. You could build whatever you want. But the game doesn't let you do that. The game limits you to hold no more than four or five if you take an upgrade. And that makes it so challenging to do things efficiently. Uh, it is so painful to take a turn where, oh, I've got exactly what I want, but I can only harvest two things. And they aren't even the two things I want because I don't have any more room. And it won't let you... I mean, and you, you have to find ways to use the stuff you've already... Oh, man! Uh, like I said... It, this is a it, it, you know you could play this very casually, and I, I have seen people say it's really simple. But Jen, I found playing well, playing smart, it is a it is a game of surprising hidden depths because of that choke point that you 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 can make incredibly powerful moves, but they don't do any good unless you have set yourself up correctly. And we were very impressed by it. Our only complaint is that it's very tactical. You can't really plan your turns ahead of time. And when I play with Jen, she would sometimes take several minutes to figure out the ideal way to manipulate the tower. And I can't take, I can't plan my turn until it comes back to me because I have no idea what the tower is going to look like when it becomes my turn. But that's a minor complaint in what is just a brilliant. I mean, 2020. Say what you will about the year, but it was a great year for really brilliantly designed lightweight gateway or gateway plus games. And Four Gardens was one of them. It's my number three of the month. It's my, I forget what it was. It was like my number four or my number five, maybe my number six of the year. Brilliant game. Coming soon. Uh, right now it's not widely available, but it will be more widely available in the new year. Uh, my number three of the month, Four Gardens. But we're not done yet, folks. Let's talk about my number two and my only paid Kickstarter preview, which uh, goes live again. On um, on January 5th, along with those games that uh, uh, Shay covered, uh, January 5th is going to be a good day. A lot of cool stuff is launching. And for my money, my favorite one is Darwin's Journey. And like I said, folks, this was a paid Kickstarter preview, so take my subjective games with a grain of salt. But, oh man... This is um, from designer Simone Luciani teaming up with uh, Nestore Mangori. Um, and, you know, ne uh, you know, I recently did my top 10 updated favorite designer, top 10 additional favorite designers. And, um, oh, oh, excuse me, I'm, 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 I'm running dry. I need to get another drink of water. Just a second. Mm. Ah, excuse me. Sorry. Um, so, Simone Luciani made my top 10 additional favorite designers of all time because of some of his brilliant designs like Zulk and the Mind Calendar and Voyages of Marco Polo and Lorenzo Il Magnifico and uh, Grand Austria Hotel. And now I will definitely add Darwin's Journey to that list because this is a game that is as good as those and stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with his best work to date. Although, I should point out, he rarely works alone. He's always uh, collaborating with all these different Italian designers. This is, I think, the second time he's done a game with Nestore. I think his well, the first one was Newton, which was also an excellent game. But anyway, I'm not saying this is his best one, but this is in the upper echelon of games uh, from him and and uh, uh, Nestore um, as well. It is all about. Basically retelling the uh, the exploration path that Darwin took to basically come to the theory of evolution. We are exploring the Galapagos Islands. We are sailing ship. We are sending our samples back to museums. We are studying. And most importantly, this is a worker placement game, we are d investing in the academic knowledge of our workers. Our workers all start out knowing one thing. They're good explorers. They're good navigators. They're good corresponders. And that's another thing we're doing a lot is correspondence with other scientists around the world in this game. And so, if I've got a worker who's really good at correspondence, that means there are some actions he can do very well. There are some actions he cannot do at all. And um, trying to balance my different workers to uh, you know, uh, you know, know, get the most out of them is very, very challenging. But over the course of the game, uh, one of the actions you can do is the academy action that trains your workers to do more stuff. They can get specialized and get better and better at the stuff they already know, or they can branch out. If they branch out, they are going to be much more flexible and how you can send them out to the worker placement. If they specialize, that means you are going to be able to unlock more powerful versions of the basic stuff they do. And that's a tough choice. But I just love the thematic notion of investing in your workforce. I mean, as part of setup, you draft cards that actually show you the pictures. I wish they showed the names, too. I wish they'd given names to them so that I'd be even more. I, I want to name my people because I know what they look like. I know who they are. I know what their life goals are because the cards we draft for also give us targets that will allow them to unlock levels of distinction so they become more powerful as worker placement pawns again. There's a lot going on. And it's 
its heart, this is a simple worker placement game with some where the board tightens up very quickly with some really brilliant mechanisms there too. But this central idea, it's not the first time we've seen it, but it's a really fresh way to do it, of investing in your workers long term. It's brilliant. And uh, yeah, it's my number two game of the month. It's going to be, uh, tomorrow I'm going to be filming my top 10, 25 most anticipated games of 2021. This will probably be on that. Although I have to find out, is it a 2021 or a 2022 game? But anyway, regardless, it was the number two game that Jen and I played for the month of December, coming on Kickstarter in the first week of January. And number two, Darwin's Journey. Phew! Okay, but that leaves the number one, Bonfire. Oh yeah, folks, uh, it came very late in the year, but uh, Stefan Feld design number two showed up at our door. Jen and I immediately beat feet to play it, and we fell in love with it. Of course we did, because we love Stefan Feld. This is also in my top ten games of the year. I think it was my number six, maybe my number five. And what's interesting is, it kind of harkens back to the Feld of yore. Because a few years ago, Feld was year-on-year putting out big, heavy, meaty, complex, intricate designs with a million things going on, very simple core mechanisms that drive a very rich and robust simulation. Um, But for the last years, he's been doing lighter stuff, simpler stuff. This is getting back to Luna, to Macau, to Bora Bora, um, Aquasphere, um, uh, Trajan. This is that type of Feld game. And that's our favorite type of Feld game. We love this kind of stuff, and we loved it. The core of this game, which is all about a gnomish tribe trying to explore the world to find these mysterious guardians who have to be um, coaxed back to the cities to relight the bonfires that keep away the darkness. That's the theme. It's like any Stefan Feld game. I mean, you could argue it's a pasted-on theme, but I think there's enough there um, You know that your choices and the actions you do make sense within the thematic framework of the game. But what happens is... Um, you have a bunch of tiles that represent actions you can do. And um, sometimes you can do the actions just paying just a few of them. Sometimes you need a lot of them to pay. But eventually you'll run out of those tiles and you need to do more actions. And what you do then is you have a group of tiles, or a little uh, three tiles, or tiles that have three icons on them. And when you play one of those to the city, that gives you more action tiles, so that determines what you can do. But um, you have to take these tiles in a certain order. So you have to do a lot of advanced planning. Because if you want to ship sail a lot, you have to figure out which of those tiles are you going to recruit to bring to the city to give you the actions you need to sail or to recruit or to um, uh, you know, basically uh, you know, do goods conversion stuff. There's lots of different things that can be done. Um, building pathways. And uh, you can't do everything. Uh, you will be able to chase after objective cards that will make you really want to focus on certain things. It's a race to everything because um, you know it's it's uh, if somebody else if you're working really hard to get into position so you can do this really great bonfire action, but then somebody else does the bonfire before you and rotates and now oh my gosh I can't do that anymore I'm gonna have to wait three rounds until it goes all the way around again before I'm in position. So you are constantly racing. And, um, you know, this is not an aggressive game because it's not really the case that I'm going to be doing things that would ruin what you're trying to do. But I could inadvertently, just by pursuing my own agenda, really get in the way of your agenda. So there's constant complications that are brought about by the choices of your opponents. Not because it's an aggressive game, but because it's an interactive game. It's an intricately game where our decisions are carefully woven with each other. And it's brilliant. It's got a great look. It's very fun and fast and fluid, and yet still there's a ton of variety of objectives you can chase after. It's very much a point-solid game in the best possible way. It's my number one game of the month and one of my top ten of the year, Bonfire. And that is it, folks. I think we have made it. And, um... Phew! Okay. This was... Oh, we were at 52 minutes. That's pretty short. Lately, these have been like an hour and a half long. But like I said, this was a shorter month. We'll see what 2021 has in store for us. Uh, I've already gotten a few new games I'm excited to try. And hopefully, uh, Jen will be able to step away now that Christmas season is over from the torch and stop making so much GamerGlass.art for you folks that she can come and play some games with me. Although... As always, folks, please go to www.gamerglass.art if you'd like uh, some great gift ideas. Even if Christmas is over, there's always birthdays, right? Um, Anyway, though, 
That's it. Another year done. Another month done. And I am definitely 100% done with 2020. No more looking back. It's only forward, onward, and upward for a brave and exciting new year. And in closing again, folks, happy new year from me and from the fine folks at funagame.coms who have, as always, sponsored this show. Thanks to them. Thanks to you for watching. Have a good day. Have a good month. Have a good year. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.